Chapter 10 of Old Time Makers of Medicine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich. September 2009, Alexandria, Virginia. Old Time Makers of Medicine by James Joseph. Chapter 10 Great Surgeons of the Medieval Universities. Part two of three. Bruno de Longoburgo, the first of this important group of North Italian surgeons who taught at these universities, was Bruno of Longoburgo. While he was born in Calabria and probably studied in Salerno, his work was done at Vicenza, Padua, and Verona. His textbook, the Surgeria Magna, dedicated to his friend Andrew of Piacenza, was completed at Padua in January 1252. Gurlt notes that he is the first of the Italian surgeons who quotes, besides the Greeks, the Arabian writers on surgery. Eclecticism had definitely come into vogue to replace exclusive devotion to the Greek authors, and men were taking what was good wherever they found it. Geralt tells us that Bruno owed much of what he wrote to his own experience and observation. He begins his work by a definition of surgery, surgeria, tracing it to the Greek and emphasizing that it means handwork. Then he declares that it is the last instrument of medicine to be used only when the other two instruments, diet and potions, have failed. He insists that surgeons must learn by seeing surgical operations and watching them long and diligently. They must be neither rash nor overbold and should be extremely cautious about operating. While he says that he does not object to a surgeon taking a glass of wine, the followers of this specialty must not drink to such an extent as to disturb their command over themselves, and they must not be habitual drinkers. While all that is necessary for their art cannot be learned out of books, they must not despise books, however, for many things can be learned readily from books, even about the most difficult parts of surgery. Three things the surgeon has to do, quote, to bring together separated parts, to separate those that have become abnormally united, and to extirpate what is superfluous, end quote. In his second chapter on healing, he talks about healing by first and second intention. Wounds must be more carefully looked to in summer than in winter, because putrefactio est major in estete quam in hyeme, putrefaction is greater in summer than in winter. For proper union, care must be exercised to bring the wound edges accurately together and not allow hair or oil or dressings to come between them. In large wounds he considers stitching indispensable, and recommends for this a fine square needle. The preferable suture material in his experience was silk or linen. The end of the wound was to remain open in order that lint might be placed therein, in order to draw off any objectionable material. He is particularly insistent on the necessity for drainage. In deep wounds, special provision must be made, and in wounds of extremities, the limb must be so placed 
as to encourage drainage. If drainage does not take place, then either the wound must be thoroughly opened, or if necessary, a counter-opening must be made to provide drainage. All his treatment of wounds is dry, however. Water, he considered, always did harm. We can readily understand that the water generally available, and especially as surgeons saw it in camps and on the battlefield, was likely to do much more harm than good. In penetrating wounds of the belly cavity, if there was difficulty in bringing about the reposition of the intestines, they were first to be pressed back with a sponge soaked in warm wine. Other manipulations are suggested, and if necessary, the wound must be enlarged. If the omentum finds its way out of the wound, all of it that is black or green must be cut off. In cases where the intestines are wounded, they are to be sewed with a small needle and a silk thread, and care is to be exercised in bringing about complete closure of the wound. This much will give a good idea of Bruno's thoroughness. Altogether, Geralt, in his History of Surgery, gives about fifteen large octavo pages of rather small type to a brief compendium of Bruno's teachings. One or two other remarks of Bruno are rather interesting in the light of modern developments in medicine. For instance, he suggests the possibility of being able to feel a stone in the bladder by means of bimanual palpation. He teaches that mothers may often be able to cure hernias both umbilical and inguinal, in children, by promptly taking up the treatment of them as soon as noticed, bringing the edges of the hernial opening together by bandages, and then preventing the reopening of the hernia by prohibiting wrestling and loud crying and violent motion. He has seen overgrowth of the mamma in men, and declares that it is due to nothing else but fat, as a rule. He suggests if it should hang down and be in the way on account of its size, it should be extirpated. He seems to have known considerable about the lipomas and advises that they need only be removed in case they become bothersomely large. The removal is easy, and any bleeding that takes place may be stopped by means of the cautery. He divides rectal fistulae into penetrating and non-penetrating, and suggests salves for the non-penetrating and the actual cautery for those that penetrate. He warns against the possibility of producing incontinence by the incision of deep fistulae, for this would leave the patient in a worse state than before. Hugh of Lutza Bruno brought up with him the methods and principles of surgery from the south of Italy, but there seems to have been already in the north at least one distinguished surgeon who had made his mark. This was Ugo de Luzza, or Ugo Luzanus, sometimes known in the modern times in German histories of medicine as Hugo de Luzza, and in English, Hugh of Luzza. He flourished early in the 13th century. In 1214, he was called to Bologna to become the city physician, and joined the Bolognese volunteers in the crusade in 1218, being present at the siege of Dometa. He returned to Bologna in 1221, and was given the post of legal physician to the city. The civic statues of Bologna are, according to Geralt, 
the oldest monument of legal medicine in the Middle Ages. Ugo died not long after the middle of the century, and is said to have been nearly 100 years old. Of his five sons, three became physicians. The most celebrated of these was Theodoric, who wrote a textbook of surgery in which are set down the traditions of surgery that had been practiced in his father's life. Theodoric is especially enthusiastic in praise of his father, because he succeeded in bringing about such perfect healing of wounds, with only wine and water, and the ligature, and without the employment of any ointments. Ugo seems to have occupied himself much with chemistry. To him we owe a series of discoveries with regard to anodyne and anesthetizing drugs. He is said to have been the first who taught the sublimation of arsenic. Unfortunately, he left no writings after him, and all that we know of him we owe to the filial devotion of his son Theodoric. Theodoric. This son, after having completed his medical studies at the age of about twenty-three, entered the Dominican order, then only recently established, but continued his practice of medicine undisturbed. His ecclesiastical preferment was rapid. He attracted the attention of the Bishop of Valencia and became his chaplain in Rome. At the age of about fifty, he was made a bishop in South Italy and later transferred to the bishopric of Servia, not far from Ravenna. Most of his life seems to have been passed in Bologna, however, and he continued to practice medicine, devoting his fees, however, entirely to charity. His textbook of surgery was written about 1266 and is signed with his full name and title as Bishop of Servia. Even at this time, however, he still retained the custom of designating himself as a member of the Dominican order. The most interesting thing in the first book of his surgery is undoubtedly his declaration that all wounds should be treated only with wine and bandaging. Wine, he insists on, as the best possible dressing for wounds. It was the most readily available antiseptic that they had at that time, and undoubtedly both his father's recommendation of it and his own favorable experience with it were due to this quality. It must have acted as an excellent inhibitive agent of many of the simple forms of pus formation. At the conclusion of this first book, he emphasizes that it is extremely important for the healing of wounds that the patient should have good blood, and this can only be obtained from suitable nutrition. It is essential, therefore, for the physician to be familiar with the foods which produce good blood in order that his wounded patients may be fed appropriately. He suggests, then, a number of articles of diet which are particularly useful in producing such a favorable state of the tissues as will bring about the rebirth of flesh and the adhesion of wound surfaces. Shortly before he emphasizes the necessity for not injuring nerves, though if nerves have been cut, they should be brought together as carefully as possible, the wound edges being then approximated. Probably the most interesting feature for our generation of the great textbooks of the surgeons of the medieval universities is the occurrence in them 
of definite directions for securing union in surgical wounds, at least by first intention, and their insistence on keeping wounds clear. The expression union, by first intention, comes to us from the olden time. They even boasted that the scars left after their incisions were often so small as to be scarcely noticeable. Such expressions, of course, could only have come from men who had succeeded in solving some of the problems of antisepsis that were solved once more in the generation preceding our own. With regard to their treatment of wounds, Professor Clifford Albert says, quote, They washed the wound with wine, scrupulously removing every foreign particle. Then they brought the edges together, not allowing wine nor anything else to remain within. Dry adhesive surfaces were their desire. Nature, they said, produces the means of union in a viscous exudation, or natural balm, as it was afterwards called by Paracelsus, Paré, and Wurtz. In older wounds, they did their best to obtain union by cleansing, desiccation, and refreshing of the edges. Upon the outer surface, they laid only lint steeped in wine. Powders they regarded as too desiccating, for powder shuts in decomposing matters, wine after washing, purifying, and drying the raw surfaces evaporates. Theodoric comes nearest to us of all these old surgeons. The surgeon who in 1266 wrote, quote, For it is not necessary, as Roger and Roland have written, as many of their disciples teach, and as all modern surgeons profess, that pus should be generated in wounds. No error can be greater than this. Such a practice is indeed to hinder nature, to prolong the disease, and to prevent the conglutination and consolidation of the wound, End quote. was more than half a millennium ahead of his time. The italics in the word modern are mine, but might well have been used by some early advocate of antisepsis, or even by Lord Lister himself. Just six centuries, almost to the year, would separate the two declarations, yet they would be just as true at one time as at another. When we learn that Theodoric was proud of the beautiful cicatrices which he obtained without the use of any ointment, Pulcherimus cicatrices sine unguento aliquo inducibat, then further that he impugned the use of poultices and of oils on wounds, while powders were too drying, and besides had a tendency to prevent drainage, the literal meaning of the Latin words sanium incarcerare is to incarcerate sanius material. It is easy to understand that the claim that antiseptic surgery was anticipated six centuries ago is no exaggeration, and no far-fetched explanation with modern ideas in mind of certain clever modes of dressing hit upon accidentally by medieval surgeons. Theodoric's treatment of many practical problems is interesting for the modern time. For instance, in his discussion of cancer, he says that there are two forms of the affection. One of them is due to a melancholy humor, a constitutional tendency, as it were, 
and occurs especially in the breasts of women or latent in the womb. This is difficult of treatment and usually fatal. The other class consists of a deep ulcer with undetermined edges, occurring particularly on the legs, difficult to cure and ready of relapse, but for which the outlook is not so bad. His description of nole me tangere and of lupus is rather practical. Lupus is, quote, eating herpes, end quote, occurs mainly on the nose or around the mouth, slowly increases, and either follows a preceding erysipelas or comes from some internal cause. Nole me tangere is a corroding ulcer, so-called perhaps because irritation of it causes it to spread more rapidly. He thinks that deep cauterization is the best treatment. Since these are in the department of skin diseases, this seems to place the mention that Theodoric describes salivation as occurring after the use of mercury for certain skin diseases. He has already shown that he knows of certain genital ulcers and sores on the genital regions and of distinctions between them. William of Salicet The third of the great surgeons in northern Italy was William of Salicet. He was a pupil of Bruno's and the master of Lanfranc. The first part of his life was passed at Bologna, and the latter part as the municipal and hospital physician of Verona. He probably died about 1280. He was a physician as well as a surgeon, and was one of those who insisted that the two modes of practicing medicine should not be separated, or if they were, both medicine and surgery would suffer. He thought that the physician learned much by seeing the interior of the body during life while the surgeon was more conservative if he were a physician. It is curiously interesting to find that the Regius professors at both Oxford and Cambridge in our time have expressed themselves somewhat similarly. Professor Clifford Albut is quite emphatic in this matter, and Professor Ulcer is on record to the same effect. Following Theodoric, William of Salicet did much to get away from the Arabic abuse of the cautery and brought the knife back to its proper place again as the ideal surgical instrument. Unlike those who had written before him, William quoted very little from preceding writers. Whenever he quotes his contemporaries, it is in order to criticize them. He depended on his own experience and considered that it was only what he had actually learned from experience that he should publish for the benefit of others. A very good idea of the sort of surgery that William of Salicet practiced may be obtained even from the beginning of the first chapter of his first book. This is all with regard to surgery of the head. He begins with the treatment of hydrocephalus or, as he calls it, Quote, water collected in the heads of children newly born, end quote. He rejects opening of the head by an incision because of the danger of it. In a number of cases, however, he had had success by puncturing the scalp and membranes with a cautery, though but a very small opening was made and the fluid was allowed to escape only drop by drop. He then takes up eye diseases, 
a department of surgery rather well developed at that time, as can be seen from our account of the work of Pope John Twenty One as an ophthalmologist during the 13th century. See Ophthalmology, January 1909, reprinted in Catholic Churchmen in Science, Philadelphia, The Dolphin Press, 1909. William devotes six chapters to the diseases of the eyes and the eyelids. Then there are two chapters on the affections of the ears. Foreign bodies and an accumulation of earwax are removed by means of instruments. A polyp is either cut off or its pedicle bound with a ligature, and it is allowed to shrivel. The next chapter is on the nose. Nasal polyps were to be grasped with a sharp tenaculum, cum tenacillus acutus, and either wholly or partially extracted. Ranula was treated by being lifted well forward by means of a sharp iron hook and then split with a razor. It is evident that the tendency of these to fill up again was recognized, and accordingly it was recommended that vitriol powder, or alum with salt, be placed in the cavity for a time after evacuation in order to produce adhesive inflammation. In the same chapter on the mouth, one finds that William did not hesitate to perform what cannot but be considered rather extensive operations within the oral cavity. For instance, he tells of removing a large epulis and gives an account in detail of the case. To quote his own words, quote, I cured a certain woman from Piacenza who was suffering from fleshy tumor on the gums of the upper jaw the tumor having grown to such a size above the teeth and the gums that it was as large or perhaps larger than a hen's egg. I removed it at four operations by means of heated iron instruments. At the last operation, I removed the teeth that were loose with certain parts of the jawbone. End quote. In the next chapter, there is an account of the treatment of a remarkable case of abscesses of the uvula, in the following chapter, the swelling of cervical glands is taken up. In his experience, expectant treatment of these was the best. He advises internal medication with the building up of the general health or suggests allowing the inflamed glands to empty themselves after pustulation. After much meddlesome surgery, we are almost back to his methods again. He did not hesitate to treat goiter surgically, though he considered there were certain internal remedies that would benefit it. In obstinate cases, he suggests the complete extirpation of cystic goiter, but if the sac is allowed to remain, it should be thoroughly rubbed over on the inside with green ointment. He warns about the necessity for avoiding the veins and arteries in this operation, and says that, quote, In this affection, Many large veins make their appearance, and they find their way everywhere through the fleshy mass. End quote. What I have given here is to be found in a little more than half a page of Gurlt's abstract of the first twenty chapters of Salisette's first book. Altogether, Gurlt has more than ten pages of rather small print with regard to William. Most of it is as interesting and as practical and as representative of anticipations 
of what is done in the modern time, as what I have here quoted. William, as I have said, depended much more upon his own experience than upon what was to be found in textbooks. He knew the old textbooks very well, however, but as a rule did not quote from them unless he had tried the recommendations for himself or unless similar cases to these mentioned had come under his own observation. He was evidently a thoroughly observant physician, a skilled surgeon who is practical enough to see the simplest way to do things, and he proceeded to do them. It is no wonder that he influenced succeeding generations so much, nor that his great pupil, Lanfranc, continuing his tradition, founded a school of surgery in Paris, the influence of which was to endure almost down to our time, and give France a primacy in surgery until the 19th century. Lanfranc. After Salicet's lifetime, the focus of interest in surgery changes from Italy to France, and what is still more complementary to William, it is through a favorite disciple of his that the change takes place. This was Lanfranchi, or Lanfranco, sometimes spoken of as Alan Francus, who practiced as a physician and surgeon in Milan, until banished from there by Matteo Visconti, about 1290. He then went to Lyons, where in the course of his practice he attracted so much attention that he was offered the opportunity to teach surgery in Paris. He attracted what Geralt calls an almost incredible number of scholars to his lessons in Paris, and by hundreds they accompanied him to the bedside of his patients and attended his operations. The dean of the medical faculty, Jean de Passavant, urged him to write a textbook of surgery, not only for the benefit of his students at Paris, but for the sake of the prestige which this would confer on the medical school. Deans still urged the same reasons for writing. Lanfranc completed his surgery, called Chirurgia Magna, in 1296, and dedicated it to Philippe le Bel, then the reigning French king. Ten years later he died, but in the meantime he had transferred Italian prestige in surgery from Italy to France, and laid the foundations in Paris of a thoroughly scientific as well as a practical surgery, though this department of the medical school had been in a sadly backward state when he came. In the second chapter of his textbook, the first containing the definition of surgery and general introduction, Lanfranc describes the qualities that, in his opinion, a surgeon should possess. He says, quote, It is necessary that a surgeon should have a temperate and moderate disposition, that he should have well-formed hands, long slender fingers, a strong body, not inclined to tremble, and with all his members trained to the capable fulfillment of the wishes of his mind. He should be of deep intelligence and of a simple, humble, brave, but not audacious disposition. He should be well grounded in natural science, and should know not only medicine, but every part of philosophy, should know logic well, so as to be understand what is written, to talk properly, and to support what he has to say by good reasons. End quote. 
He suggests that it would be well for the surgeon to have spent some time teaching grammar and dialectics and rhetoric, especially if he is to teach others in surgery, for this practice will add greatly to his teaching power. Some of his expressions might be well repeated to young surgeons in the modern time. Quote, the surgeon should not love difficult cases and should not allow himself to be tempted to undertake those that are desperate. He should help the poor as far as he can, but he should not hesitate to ask for good fees from the rich. End quote. Many generations since Lanfranc's time have used the word nerves for tendons. Lanfranc, however, made no such mistake. He says that the wounds of nerves, since the nerve is an instrument of sense and motion, are, on account of the greater sensitiveness which these structures possess, likely to involve much pain. Wounds along the length of the nerves are less dangerous than those across them. When a nerve is completely divided by a cross wound, Lanfranc is of the opinion, though Theodoric and some others are opposed to it, that the nerve ends should be stitched together. He says that this suture ensures the redintegration of the nerve much better. After this operation, the restoration of the usefulness of the member is more complete and assured. His description of the treatment of the bite of a rabid dog is interesting. A large cupping glass should be applied over the wound so as to draw out as much blood as possible. After this, the wound should be dilated and thoroughly cauterized to its depths with a hot iron. It should then be covered with various substances that were supposed to draw, in order as far as possible to remove the poison. His descriptions of how one may recognize a rabid animal is rather striking in the light of our present knowledge, for he seems to have realized that the main diagnostic element is a change in the disposition of the animal, but above all a definite tendency to lack playfulness. Lanfranc had seen a number of cases of true rabies, and describes and suggests treatment for them, though evidently without very much confidence in the success of the treatment. The treatment of snake bites and the bites of other poisonous animals was supposed to follow the principles laid down for the bite of a mad dog, especially as regards the encouragement of free bleeding and the use of the cautery. Lanfranc has many other expressions that one is tempted to quote because they show a thinking surgeon of the old time, anticipating many supposedly modern ideas and conclusions. He is a particular favorite of Gurlt's, who has more than twenty-five large octavo, closely printed pages with regard to him. There is scarcely any development in our modern surgery that Lanfranc has not at least a hint of, certainly nothing in the surgery of a generation ago that does not find a mention in his book. On most subjects, he has practical observations from his own experience to add to what was in surgical literature before his time. He quotes altogether more than a score of writers on surgery who had preceded him and evidently was thoroughly familiar with general surgical literature. There is scarcely an important surgical topic 
on which Geralt does not find some interesting and personal remarks made by Lanfranc. All that we can do here is refer those who are interested in Lanfranc to his own works or Geralt. End of part two of three.